Welcome. I'm your host, Adam Bailey, and I'm a commercial drone operator in the UK. This podcast looks into the UK drone industry, the people, the companies, and what's going on out there. All my guests play a major part in the industry. Welcome to the UK Commercial Drone Podcast. On the pod today, I have Professor Jim Scanlon, Professor of Aerospace Design at University of Southampton. Welcome to the pod, Jim. Hi. Tell us about yourself and what you're doing at the moment in the drone sphere. I have a background in aerospace. I've worked in the aerospace industry for something like 15 years, Airbus and British Aerospace, and I now teach aircraft design. And you work on a number of research programs ranging from underwater vehicles to high-altitude UAVs. Are there any really interesting projects you're working on at the moment? There's a number of projects. One involves swarming drones that we drop from high altitude to sample very large blocks of airspace. We've just had a project called AURA, A-W-R-A, which stands for Adverse Weather Research Aircraft. The idea is to fly instruments into tornadoes. So we've got a couple of aircraft going out to the States in a couple of weeks' time to do that. And we've been approached by a company who want to produce a very large unmanned transport aircraft for humanitarian relief in places like South Sudan. The first of those projects are really interesting, uh, the swarming. So what does that entail? So what we've designed is a semi-disposable sensor craft. So it's a very small, something like 15 gram unit that's got enough power and intelligence to record things like pressure, temperature, altitude, location. Uh, They will passively swarm. In other words, they will randomly distribute in an airspace. And there's a more recent version that actively swarms. So it'll communicate and areas of interest will be areas where the aircraft can swarm around. And what's the idea of that research? What's the output that you're looking to to find? Project Mavis, as it was called, Massive Airspace Instrumentation System, is for climate researchers. At the moment, they have very little data in very large blocks of airspace. At the moment, they'll release things called radio sondes that will give them a linear profile of the atmosphere, but they won't get... essentially a simultaneous picture of a very large block of airspace, and that helps them to model the atmosphere very accurately. So how big are these drones in the swarm? They're about the size of a mobile phone, but obviously a lot lighter. Essentially, they look like paper aeroplanes, but they're quite sophisticated devices printed with conducting ink on special paper. How many drones would there be in a swarm? We could drop hundreds of these things. They're very light, so you can you can take a very large batch of these into the atmosphere. We drop them from helium balloons, so there's a payload capacity of the balloons, but you could literally take large numbers of these into into the... What's upper. the largest swarm we've done so far? We've only really tested individual units because once we've proven the functionality, then it's up to customers to decide where and how they fly them. So the idea is to get this out into the commercial space for, for, that, right. for that end user. Exactly. Is, is that the nature of most of your research? It's with a commercial end product in mind? Often that's the case, but our, our job is to do low TRL work and generate ideas and new pieces of research that others 
not always us can take on and, and move forward. Just for our listeners, can you just expand on TRL? Technology readiness level. It's a US measure, US DOD, Department of Defense measure. Normally scale one to 10. 10 means it's ready and proven technology that can be applied immediately. And low TRL is, is um, research, fundamental research. Moving on from the swarms, um, you mentioned another project. There's one called Ultra and there's one called Aura. Aura, yes, that's one. Can you uh, expand a bit on Aura for us? Like a lot of our projects, our projects are often science-driven, where scientists want some information and it's either very difficult to get that information or it's very expensive to gather that information. And again, scientists don't really have all the data they need to accurately model the behaviour of tornadoes, both the formation of tornadoes and their behaviour, speed, size and lifetime, for example. So putting instruments actually into a tornado is, is very, very useful. There was a film, must be about 10 years or so ago, called Twisters, and they had balls which they then drove into the middle of of this tornado coming and they all flew up in the middle of it. Is it something similar to it's that? It's very similar to that. But this is reality, not yeah. a film. So we've designed, this is an undergraduate student project led by Dr. Sebesta, my colleague, and we've designed an extremely robust aeroplane that can fly as close as we dare get to a tornado and release scientific instruments that will be sucked into the tornado. And then it's creating, what, a point cloud? or Yes, that's right. So these instruments will be transmitting live data and they have long streamers on them so we would hope to gather them after the event but beaming live data is the most important role there. Now I know that you've got a propensity for 3D printing is that correct? Yeah yeah and that you once 3D printed a plane? Yes so that was a project called SALSA so that's Southampton University laser sintered aircraft it was something we did for new scientists, and the challenge was to design and build an aeroplane within a week. Uh, and that's something we successfully did, and we flew the aircraft. Uh, we didn't realise at the time it was the world's first printed aircraft. But that transpired like later. And we had several US universities who did a similar thing but didn't realise we'd already done it. And we've developed that aircraft, and we've flown it off several UK Navy ships and we'll be flying it in Antarctica sometime next year. And how big is this plane? Just under two metres wingspan, very high wing loading, so it can fly in very turbulent conditions. It can fly quite fast, so it can fly at almost 100 miles an hour. And it, again, it was a technology demonstrator. If I'm correct, you first printed that in 2011? That's right, yes. So the technology's obviously moved a lot further on since those days. Is it now much more sophisticated when you're printing this plane or is it still this the same design as when that you started out with well the aircraft itself we're you know, constantly fitting new avionics to it and better sensors and better cameras to it and better live video feed systems and the technology's moving on so better materials stronger materials cheaper materials so yes it's moving all the time with all these aircraft, are you designing your own flight controller systems for them or are you using any off-the-shelf products or anything like that with the idea that you're looking at the commercial end product? So for our larger aircraft, 
and the more sophisticated aircraft will fly an autopilot system that was developed by an ex-PhD student of Southampton's and a company was formed called Sky Circuits, which is now successfully producing commercial autopilots for a company called Callum Lenz, who, who took over the company. Many of our listeners would have heard of Callum Lenz, and they obviously work in the larger commercial sphere of things. For those of you who aren't familiar with them, just quickly Google them and you'll sure to come over the website. For yourself, do you do any kind of commercial activities with drones outside of the research side of things? I have a spin-out business that produces software for the aerospace industry, and it's not specific to drones. We produced a commercial spin-out, which is a tethered rotary wing UAV, which is being exploited at the moment. So it has infinite endurance because the power to the rotors is supplied through a tether. So we've got a number of small commercial spin-offs at the moment, and we're in particular helping our science colleagues to do commercial mapping and commercial surveying activities. I think I've seen that tethered drone. Is it the one on the back of the trailer? That's right, yes. yes. Yeah. Where can anyone who's listening find out any more information about that tethered drone? If they email me at the university, I can put them in touch with Dr. Stephen Pryor, who developed that. And we'll put the contact details for Jim on the description of the pod. So if you do want to contact Jim, the details will be there, along with the web address for the university. You're doing some activities within the BVLOS, Beyond Visual Line of Sight, for those of you who don't know that acronym. Can you tell us a bit more about that? We fly at a number of locations in Hampshire, and... Essentially, to get permission to do the more risky things, you need to develop a very good relationship with the Civil Aviation Authority, who will gradually you'll build up a level of trust. Um, so they now trust us to fly what's known as extended line of sight, so we can fly beyond the standard 500 metres. And we've got a couple of missions coming up where we need to fly 10, 20 kilometres out to sea, and we're working up that commercial case. In the short term, we've just purchased a manned aircraft that we're going to fly as though it was a UAV. So we'll fit it out with the UAV avionics and sensors and comms gear. But because it's a manned aircraft, we'll be able to fly that wherever we want. We won't need specific permission to do that. Is this a bit like the driverless cars that still got the driver sitting behind the That's wheel? Exactly and if they right. need to get involved, they take exactly. over. Yes, yes. So it, it means that the aircraft is able to behave like a UAV and we can control it like a UAV, but we have a safety pilot sitting in the aircraft. What's the name of that project? It's not got a specific name at the moment, but I'm delighted to report that we've got a, an aircraft registration, we think, which ends in UAV. <laughs> Great stuff. Does this have any relation to the universe being part of the Airstar group project? Um, not specifically, no, but it's connected with that work. So one of the missions we have to fly within the Airstart project is to fly a communications pod tens of kilometres out away from base station. For those of you not familiar with Airstart, just Google Airstart. I'll also put a link to the website on the description of this podcast so that you can go to it. University of Southampton are partners along with... Cranfield University, Callan Lens and a number of other... Airbus 
And, uh, sorry, and the Airbus are leading it. Yeah. And also ARPAS UK as the Members Association of the Industry. That's right, yeah. Which is how I've come about to, to meet Jim today. Do you fly drones personally, commercial off-the-shelf stuff or anything like that? I used to be a hobby flyer, so flying fixed-wing aircraft. I fly full-size aircraft and so have a good appreciation of drone air law and associated traffic issues and also don't really want to bump into a rogue UAV. And I fly rotary wing drones. And of course, that, that's getting easier and easier. These days, you command them rather than fly them. No yeah. particular skills required. Especially in GPS, you're basically telling it to move from one place to the other. You're not really flying. Exactly, yeah. Although we do still commercially call ourselves pilots. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, not quite the same as someone who's got PPL like yourself, but I'm still a drone pilot, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Looking at all the research projects that you're involved in and that you have been involved in, what do you see the future is for the drone sector and for the usage of drones in the future? Well, despite all the hype and despite the exciting promise we're still stuck in a 400-foot, 500-metre bubble. And it's quite hard at the moment to get out of that bubble. So quite a lot of academic work, both in this country and internationally, is aimed at breaking out. So beyond line of sight flying, flying in hazardous areas, flying over crowds, flying in urban locations, flying infrastructure inspection along you know, 200 miles of railway, uh, power lines, pipelines. We still haven't really got routine permission to do any of that stuff. So that's the barrier that we're addressing at the moment. So is it going to need a change in regulation for drones to really have a large commercial realisation? don't think it's the regulations particularly. I think we still have to make a safety case to prove that our equipment is not going to be associated with unnecessary risks. And having very reliable communications, very reliable flight control systems is still quite a challenge because we want to do that cheaply. We don't want to you know, add several zeros to the price of the systems and make them unaffordable. Because one of the things about trains, obviously, is that it's more affordable to manned aircraft and doing these things using manned aircraft, and that's the whole point, obviously. So assuming that we get to a point whereby there's some sort of airworthiness with these aircraft, what kind of sectors do you see drones making a huge impact on that people aren't really looking at at the moment? The research we're doing, we classify the drones into one of three capabilities. So... You're either sensing, you're carrying a sensor, either a scientific sensor or a camera system, for example. So there's sensing, there's transportation, where you're actually using a drone to transport, whether it's herbicides, pesticides, packages, parcels. And then there's interaction, where a drone might actually carry a robot arm to do up bolts or to replace bulbs in a lamppost, for example. And I think drones are going to have an enormous impact in all those areas in the future. But for them to have that impact, they need to get out of that 500-metre bubble that they're stuck in at the moment. Looking even further, obviously, you know, there's advances in um, artificial intelligence as well. 
do you see a future whereby drones will be autonomous? Well, in the work we do at Southampton, I have colleagues who design and build underwater robots. And that's a really interesting and exciting area of research because you can't talk to underwater robots because of the physics of communications. You can't actually communicate beyond a few hundred metres. So they're the people that genuinely produce autonomous vehicles. They have to think and make decisions by themselves. We have the luxury on the aerial side in that it's possible to talk to our aircraft. So there's less demand on the autonomy front. And you you introduce the phrase artificial intelligence. That actually introduces a certification problem because what you want is nice, predictable, pre-programmed behaviour. You don't want unpredictable behaviour, which is difficult to put a safety case around. Coming back from the future, as it were, what do you see is the most exciting thing going on when you're looking commercially? Is it the ready-to-fly sector bringing out enterprise-type drones? Is it specific sensors that are there or specific use cases that you've seen? Well, as with a lot of us, we're very impressed with the work that DJI are doing. They produce some really impressive, low-cost, high-performance rotary wing drones. I'm sure many of the people listening to this would be familiar with the Mavic multicopter. Very impressive, rock-steady HD video. Very, very impressive technology. I guess the most awaited technology is battery technology. We're all waiting for some decent high-capacity batteries because that will transform things. So do you see that happening in with lipopolymers that we're used to at the moment or is there going to be another source of energy, different type of battery that we should be looking on the horizon? Well, like many universities we've got an energy group at our university who are looking at pushing the boundaries of current battery technology using things like graphene and carbon nanotubes talking to to the experts they think that doubling the power density is possible in the next few years but doing much more than doubling the power density probably requires quite a radically different battery technology. Obviously, being someone who flies DJI kit quite regularly and commercially myself, batteries are one of those things that are hugely expensive because they design it to be so. So hopefully, if there's any change in the technology, that'll bring the price down for us as well as consumers. We're not the only people that demand better battery technology. You know, all the mobile phone and mobile computing people are pushing the technology very, very hard. I'm just surprised it's taking so long, to be honest. But do you think that with Tesla and their Gigafactory, etc., that might be a real impetus into the market to push technology further from a commercial side? To a certain extent, but Tesla cars are achieving ranges of over 200 miles. So that technology just about works. A lot of the work they're doing is charging technology so they can charge more quickly. I think it's the mobile phone market that are really pushing technology because we're all like a mobile phone that lasted a week on a single charge. I mean, that was the case with the iNews the night before as well, wasn't it? It was the mobile phone tech, yes, tech exactly. companies that pushed that on. And now, yes. we get, now we get drones uh, self-stabilised and with you know, exactly. gimbals that we don't, we're not strapping on with gaffers. Exactly. Tickets, uh. 
What's been the most exciting project that you've worked on in your time with drones? Because it's been a very, very long time you've been in this sector already. You know, some people are only just coming into this sector. What's been the most exciting thing for you to work on? I think it is the 3D printing and some of the things in the pipeline. It's quite interesting because it throws the spotlight on design because you can now literally make anything you can imagine and that forces you to think about very sophisticated architectures and topologies to exploit the technology as much as possible. We're moving into an area of multi-material printing. So we've developed a machine at uh, the university that involves being able to print conductors and insulators. So we're starting to do low TRL work in producing aircraft structures that contain wires, effectively, all printed together in, in one piece. So apart from the 3D printed plane, have you printed anything that's really out there, anything really interesting that people wouldn't expect could be 3D printed? Well, I broke a really complex bracket on my camper van and I printed a replacement in metal. So I was very pleased with that, to be honest. It's probably uh, the most useful thing that you've, you've printed in metal at the moment. At the moment. It, it stopped my camper van falling <laughs> apart. It, it's great because it, it means you can go from a really complicated shape to metal or nylon or increasingly composite-filled uh, polymers in space of a few hours. And previously, it would cost a lot of money or it'd be very complex to make you know, complicated shapes. So do you see that Enterprise will be using both those things going forward, both drones and 3D printing combined, so producing their drones 3D printed for specific operations. The trouble with 3D printing is it doesn't scale with volume. That there's a sort of niche where you're doing lots of rapid prototyping. You you want to make seven different prototypes and evaluate you know which is the best avenue. That's the niche it's in. Whereas where you go to the volumes of of drones, DJI are presumably printing. Or, or, or making manufacturing, the economics is not so good because they can they can uh, invest in uh, injection molding, but that's changing all the time. So there are some fast printers that are coming onto the market can print twice as fast. But nevertheless, if you're making a really complicated shape and you're making it in millions, you will still be using injection molding. Earlier, you mentioned in the future of drone transportation. Do you think drones will be transporting people? I mean, a lot of us have seen the quadcopter that was revealed in UAE that they say is going to transport people around there. Do you think that's a reality or do you think that's just... So this is the Ehang aircraft produced in China. I think it's a really interesting technology demonstrator. I think it'd be very hard to certify in the UK. It'd be a very difficult safety case. For example, if you're flying manned helicopters over the city of London... If you've only got a single-engine helicopter, you've got to fly over the Thames to comply with regulations. And if you want to fly anywhere else, you've got to have two engines. And that's a very sophisticated, certified aircraft that goes through endless inspections and maintenance. And quite quickly, if you apply the same rules to an autonomous electric-powered helicopter or multi-copter, it'll become similar expense. 
But it's very interesting. I applaud them for having the courage to do it. I'm not sure I'd like to fly in it myself. I'm sure we'll learn something from it. From a research point of view, if you were told funding is no object, there's no barriers uh, to what you can do, is there any area of research in the drone sphere that you'd really want to have a look at and test any theories on? Well, I think there's a few challenges we're, we're toying with at the moment. Quite a lot of our research involves earth science and supporting our earth science colleagues. So flying at very high latitudes, so either the Antarctic or the Arctic, It'd be quite interesting to set a challenge, you know, the first civil or commercial drone to fly over the North or South Pole, the first commercial or civil drone to fly round the Earth, for example. I think there's a few exciting possibilities that, you know, we might be pursuing over the next few years. So when's the Antarctic trip? It's just staffed at Easter in 2018. We're planning the mission right now, so that'll be another flight with our Salsa aircraft and we're doing that in conjunction with colleagues in New Zealand. Before that might be flying in the opposite direction so flying from Svalbard to the Arctic to deliver scientific payloads uh, to study ice flows and ice formation. If people want to look at your research or look further at any of these projects, where do they need to go to? We've got several YouTube streams. So if you go onto YouTube and type in Sotton UAV, so S-O-T-O-N UAV, you'll find lots of videos of our flights and our technology there. Well, thanks for joining us on the pod, Jim. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Hopefully we'll speak to you again after your Antarctic trip. Cheers. Thanks again for listening to the UK Commercial Drone Podcast. Subscribe and please leave a review. For more details, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook.